1: Show number 100,
0: 200! Prime City Central, featuring Tales to Terror... 400! 400. 400. Protecting Project Paul and the all-new
1: un- for... Show 500! Hello and welcome to... <clears throat> excuse me, the <laughs> little throg in the throat... Starship Sova Echoes. Today, we're going to go back to the Starship Sova Originals. Yes, myself and Kieran, when we used to chew the fat over some of the great science fiction writers. And... Like I say, those shows aren't really available anymore, but that's one of the, the, the reasons why I want to kind of start echoes, was just to sprinkle out a few of these shows in, just to give them a little airing again, dust them down and give them a little airing. And what I noticed when I listened to this, you know, I've, I've listened to, I got a be careful with myself and I put this backing music underneath it. And oh, dear, so apologies for that, because there's this drone going on in, in the background. But this is the one which was number fifteen in those original shows, and this is Hall and Ellison. And I thought it'd be nice, you know, we've just celebrated five hundred, and we had Hall and Story, A Tiny Man, and it's nice to you know just dip back into and just find out again. Honestly, it's like it's really nice to kind of listen to, you know, what we talked about, because. I'm still proud of them shows. Yeah, the quality sometimes is a bit flaky and that, but the content, you know, the, what we kind of found out and especially what Kieran found out, you know, was just fascinating. And it was, it was like, you know, when, when I sat down with Kieran and some of the, the writers I hadn't heard of at that time, you know, and it was, it was almost like a learning curve for me as well to just discover new writers. And I think, you know, myself and along with all the listeners, it was when Kieran started, you know, because Kieran had been, if, if you got into these shows and listened to them, you realised Kieran had been reading for, years, you know, since he was like a tot, where I didn't pick up fiction until, you know what I mean, until like, the the badness fell out of us, you know, when I was a kid, because just playing out and lighting fires and, you know, swimming in lakes and all that nonsense, you know what I mean? But it wasn't until possibly 21, when you know, somewhere around there, when, when I picked up a a novel and you know i'll rehash it i was you know staying at an old girlfriend's house and i was babysitting the house and the dog and they all went away and there was one i think it was it was one of the the cf lewis stories the horse and his boy is is that is that a a title for one and with you know it's bizarre kind of just clicked and I think didn't last, you know, I read it in a day almost, you know what I mean, possibly a day do you know what I mean, and that was it then I was into everything, you know what I mean And again, I, I jumped in the lake with, with Kieran if, if, you know, like plunged in and, ah, oh God I just loved it, you know what I mean, loved the, the kind of discovering and when we used to sit down and talk like that, it was genuine, I was genuinely excited, you know, because Kieran would do, you know, what I mean, I'm kind of there, batting ball with the show, but Kieran would do a lot of kind of in-depth research, you know what I mean, because he knew kind of snippets, and then he would go looking for ideas and thoughts and that. And like I say, I still stand by these shows, you know what I mean? There's some great ones in there, and we'll discover them in these echoes as well throughout the time playing them. But this one, like I say, is Hall Nelson, and I'm not exactly, you know, it must have been some, you know, some 2007 something around there, 2006 sometime, it might have been, was it 2006 then? I've really got no, if anyone knows, you know, I've got no guidance to tell us when these shows came out (laughs) because I've took them off. So I don't know if there is some sort of archive site there that kind of keeps things going and that. But if there is, let us know because it'd be so bloody handy because some of them I'm just kind of guessing away there. So anyway, I'll I'll bring in a young Mr. Kieran O'Carroll
2: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, once again,
2: I am Charlie Smith. And I am Kearon Carroll. Uh, last week we did Tony. We
1: did L. Ron Hubbard. Well, actually, was it not Morrison Barry did L. Ron Hubbard last Didn't <laughs> night? <laughs> we were actually on a, a week's vacation there, but uh, someone else stepped in and kindly did L. Ron Hubbard. So.
2: Actually, no, no, no writs have been issued in the aftermath of that show there, so obviously we're <laughs> safe so far. Well, I think everything we said was true. What more? What more do you want? Oh, it doesn't seem to stop people, that's for sure Ah, uh, we've got fantastic new intro by Jonathan Turner
1: Yes, Jonathan, thank you very much It all played last week, but I couldn't get a chance to actually thank Jonathan So Jonathan, thank you, we've got an intro and the new one, the outro as well So anybody listen out there
2: What a polished article we've become
1: <laughs> Anybody wants to send a one in, please send the intro, outro, that'll be fantastic
2: Oh, yes, and photographs, Tony. Any kind of contribution and... Um, photographs,
1: views, emails, send them in. On to Harlan Ellison. First of all, I would just like to thank Cliff. Cliff, thank you very much. Remember, last week we read out your email.
2: Kieran's going to read out, actually, Cliff's review of the Harlan Nelson book. This is Cliff's review. A lot can be learned from Allison as he treats the page like a sculpture. Visually manipulating the words on the page with such artistic flair, it is beautiful to behold. Obviously he uses this trick rarely, but to indicate a character changing his viewpoint by making a pause mid-word and carrying the word and the sentence on lower down on the other side of the page. To visually display a character's change of mind in such a way that it is transferred across to the reader seamlessly and using techniques beyond Words. Well, I've never seen another writer do such a trick. Ellison is the writer's writer. His short stories are often full of such overflowing power and passion that I have to let my emotions subside. In me. I get to savour the wave of emotion and thought, the presence left after. The story has finished. Before I start the next one, his stories are about life, people haunted by ghosts of the past, or by what they are but stories with a gut-wrenching presence, not a literary dryness. His essays are slices of life which make you realize There is so much wrong in many of the things we take for granted as you learn another, deeper way of looking at life. Upon reading the anthology, I immediately became a fan. He is full of passion, of truth unbending. You may not agree with everything he says, but you have to admire the gusto with which he says it. It is frustrating that most people in this country have never heard of him, yet he has won more awards than any other living writer. I can only hope that one day to one day chance upon another writer of such caliber. Well, Cliff, that's very impassioned, and uh, it gives you an idea of perhaps the depth of feeling that Harlan Ellison can inspire. But it's not always positive, is it, Tony?
1: No, he's left his trail of negative feelings through people as well. He's, he's certainly a character that's like... I think this actual show, there will be a few slight swear words in it because I think you can't really say anything about Hall Nelson without... You know, he is just a colourful character and he'll tell you straight to your face, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, I've read somewhere where if he doesn't like anybody, he'll certainly mention that he doesn't like them and he'll, he'll tell them to their face and you just have to listen to some of his quotes and he certainly does, but actually... If he likes someone, he doesn't often mention it. He can't be bothered. He says he can't. He doesn't can't stand there, all that kind
2: of prettiness and all this hype. He sees himself as a very ethical person, not particularly moral, but definitely ethical.
1: Yes, I was talking to my wife about this there because I was trying to like define like the morality. What he, he says, he's certainly not, but it's ethics, he certainly is. And did you know this guy actually marched with Martin Luther King on that Montgomery march in the in the sixties as well? So I listened to an
2: interview where he actually explained that he actually spoke to Martin Luther King
1: right throughout his life. He said standards and he isn't going to bend no matter what and there's some like quotes we'll get on later in the show where you just like you have to smile at the guy he has set his standard <laughs> he ain't gonna budge for nobody and it starts from a very early age he was born harlan j ellison 1934 may the 27th and he was raised in cleveland ohio not new york so there's another one not from new york he ran away from home by the time he was 18 he had done a wealth of jobs he was a tuna fisherman off the coast of Galveston, crop picker down in new orleans hired gun for a wealthy neurotic he actually drove a dynamite truck in north carolina he was a short order cook a cab driver a lithographer a book salesman a floor walker for a department store door-to-door brush
2: salesman so before anything he did all that but he was another one of these precocious children incredibly intelligent. There's a little story there he was telling on this interview that was on the Comics Network and he explained that he went to elementary school In his first day at school he managed to get kicked out of school which sounds like his character was very much (laughs) cast in in stone already. He went in there and there was all these other kids all sitting around, they were going to do a bit of finger painting perhaps, they were going to have a look at this or that or it was going to be sticking bits of uh, crepe paper to paper and and he had been looking forward to going into school because he saw it as this big temple of knowledge and he went wandering off by himself leaving the other kids to the teacher's devices looking for a book and he found a book and he picked up the book and he started reading the book and the teacher came over and took the book off him after a struggle and I, I, I think he hit her <laughs> I think he hit her anyway he gets, his mom had literally dropped him off She'd walked across the road to her house, literally got just inside the house there, and she got a phone call to go back to the school and uh, to take Haaland away. She said, I've I've literally been away five minutes. What kind of trouble could he he have possibly got into? And she got taken to the principal's office, and the story unfolded, and his mum said, why did you take the book off him? She said, because he can't possibly read. So his mother... Grabbed the nearest book off the principal's desk, opened it up at random there, pushed it in front of the young Harlan, the four-year-old Harlan, and uh, Harlan read from the book, you know, whatever it was. B is for botany, and then went through the line, and that, you know, obviously then he got an. I think they, I don't know if he got an apology, but he certainly got let back into primary school, <laughs> which is quite handy for him. Well, that that one trace that has followed
1: him through through his life. There's another story when. Ellison was asked to leave, actually, asked to leave the State University. And according to Ellison, a professor had told him he would never become a writer and all lovers of real literature would really ignore his pitiful efforts at scribbling. This is it. Ellison told him he could go f*** And Ellison later said that. For the next 40-something years, he sent the man every article, every story, every book he turned
2: out. There we go, rubbing salt in his (laughs) wounds. I think didn't Joe Haldeman do something fairly similar? where he got told by um, some visiting professor that he would never he would never ever sell a book though and his meagre talent should be employed in another direction. So the first thing he did was, um, this is obviously just before the Forever Wars, the first, first thing he did was send him a copy of the Forever War in the afterwards and the press that went with it. I don't know if he maybe told him to go up himself, but... <laughs> I think Joe Haldeman got the satisfaction just like Harlem did there by rubbing this guy's nose in it. I think the story of his writing really starts in 1955 when uh, young Harlan Ellison moves to New York City and he finds himself in, uh, with a room in a New York apartment block uh, with other luminaries. And in there he's got Bob Silverberg, yes, Bob. St- Starship Sofa, gets personal. We've actually... Familiar, de- we've familiar. Act- yes, familiar. we've actually decided
1: now, because we're, we're quite regular now, so from now on, it's it's Bob Bob Silverberg, F- Phil. <laughs> we are we know these authors in heart, and Joe, and, you know...
2: We need to have an Al in and, there as well, so yeah, we can so call somebody Al. It's not Mr., Mr. Haldeman no more, Mr. Silverberg. It's Bob. Of course, when you research somebody's life in depth there you certainly feel a certain degree of affinity with your with your subject material so you've got a situation where Hal Ellison and um, Bob Silverberg and, and Randy Ran <laughs> Randall Garrett Randy yes. Garrett are all living in this apartment block uh, in New York City and this is the start of... Alan Ellison has set himself the task of becoming a writer. He's done all this. He's, he, he, when asked in later years, why did you, you know, do all these various jobs? He said, I always understood that if you were to be a writer of any kind of pedigree, you would have to have lived a life. He said, when I was a young man, any writer was anything had a bio that read like Jack London, who had obviously been a gold miner, and read like Hemingway, who'd gone off and hunted big game. He said you had to have some kind of credibility as a man who's lived his life to actually be a person who could be taken seriously as an author.
1: I suppose then two years, this is where, he, like you see, he honed his craft, it comes in with that... Although he, he kind of hits like, the science fiction genre sometimes, he claims and categorically claims he is not a science fiction writer
2: and never has been. He's not a genre writer. Well, when he was doing that big kind of rush in the, when he hit New York there, when he, obviously his first, his first story published was, in fact, a, a, a story called Glowworm, which I think was a sci fi story. Uh, it turned up in Infinity. But he also wrote for the fanzines, he also wrote for the kind of sex and crime. And the other styles of pulps that were pre- prevalent at the time there. Uh, and he did do sci fi. And like all the guys at the time there, these were, it was a way of making a living as a writer. So you had a slew of pseudonyms like Nara, he's had Nalra Nostiel, Slay Harlson, Ellis uh, Hart, Jay Solo, Cordwainer, Bird. I and mean, that's the one he kind of he sticks to later
1: on in life, which is pretty close to his heart. He kind of says he's writing more he he says he's he's certainly not a science fiction writer he he might use like the tools and the mechanics and the furniture sometimes of science fiction but he he kind of classes himself more like a poet or a yeah
2: a fabulist this is the style of writing that goes back to jonathan swift where you basically uh invent an implausible world in which you put your characters in where perhaps um, the logic of our world is turned upside down on its head or certainly the laws that apply in our world uh, do not apply there.
1: We're talking, you know, like, we're trying to get the, this character, and Kieran said he, he kind of, he wanted to have a feel of, like, the life itself to become a writer, and actually in 57 he decided to write about gangs in New York, so this is, he actually joins, like, this, in the Brooklyn area, goes undercover as, like, Cheech Bedlone, I think it is, and this is where he actually, he's, he's ended a gang just to learn, learn about them so he can write stories about them.
2: Yeah, the gang was the Barons, and he ended up uh, writing his first non-fiction book, which was Rumble, which is also, I think, been titled as The Web of the City, and that was published in 1958. He was 24 at the, at the, at the time there, and he was posing as a 15-year-old boy. <laughs>
1: Well, actually, he probably could get away with it, you
2: know. Well, he's a big lad. Uh, according to a story he tells, I've heard he's five foot two, but uh, Isaac Asimov maintains that Harlan Ellison maintains that he's five foot four, and two inches do make a big difference for a little
1: guy. Have you heard that other story about when he's at a party? And apparently, this is down in urban legend, but it's Asimov again tells it where he's, he's at a party. And Ellison's a bit of a kind of a wild card anyways. And he goes up to this like, tall, leggy blonde, and he says, what would you say to a little f-? <laughs> And apparently this, this blonde <laughs> turns around and says, hello, little f-. <laughs> And it's uh, Asimov that tells his story and says, I don't mind telling it, because I know
2: he's probably the only person I could actually get away with telling that story about Ellison. Uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a great little, little article... Um, on the, that it's, a, it's basically a statement by Isaac Asimov about Harlan Ellison and he describes Harlan Ellison as the most colorful character I ever met. I used to see him at um, science fiction conventions in the '50s. Uh, Harlan Ellison was barely out of his teens at the time there. And he, he just says he may say that he's five foot four in height, but in terms of, in terms of ability, energy and courage, he's eight foot tall. From 1957 to 59, this is when Ellison was actually
1: drafted in the army, and I've not really got much on. We haven't, what it's happened
2: a, in the no, army? No, I've never actually... I, I've, I've come across that for 70, 57 to 79 he was drafted, and I don't really think... Much it, It's ever been mentioned ever since then. Certainly um, not like uh, last year's topic there. He said he didn't become a war hero during that particular, particular no, period. No. But that would be in the Korean War if he was involved in any kind of conflict.
1: Well, it's certainly, uh, I've never come across anything, but it was just after that he became um, he went as a book editor to Hamling's Regency Books, and this is where he published novels and anthologies by Robert Bloch and Philip Joseph- Jose Farmer.
2: Mm-hmm. They were obviously major writers of the pulp era. Actually, we should do uh, Philip Jose Farmer one of these yes, days. Yes,
1: I think he's another another one there. And this is what, like Kieran's saying, um, he's... He went on there in the late fifties to do his soft porn stories, and he had
2: titles like "God Bless Ugly Virgin" and "The Trump." Well, everybody did it. I mean, Robert Silverberg, who was living in that same apartment block with him, he says about Harlan Ellison in a in a uh, an article in Fantastic uh, Science Fiction in July nineteen seventy seven. Harlan Ellison was insecure, physically fearless, extraordinarily ambitious, hyperkinetic, and dominated any room he was in and much could be said of his work in 1962 harlan Allison moved over from new york to conquer new territory and he found himself in los angeles
1: well this is where he goes california and he starts to sell scripts to television shows and this is where he kind of he's really starting to hit things big He, he writes shows he writes scripts for route 66 outer limits he writes scripts for that and Star Trek. Yes, and the Men from Uncle, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and uh, the Flying Nun. <laughs> Flying Nun, there uh, he scribbled in '68. Hollison, uh, Holland Nelson repeatedly said he only wrote that script so he could date
2: with Sally. Uh, Sally Field. I can believe it. I can believe it. Somebody else. It, it seems that the Holland hit Los Angeles. He had about a year uh, where he seemed to be struggling, and then from '63 onwards, he hit his stride but there it does seem to be a very very strong start and perhaps a weaker finish mm-hmm. and that's, that's something we can come to later on there. Well it
1: was actually El- Ellison Lee's scripts as well and this is like quite a good bit of trivia as well Ellison wrote a script for The Outer Limits, Demon with a Glass Hand and Kieran, you mentioned that a few shows ago Demon well, it, with a Glass
2: Hand. It won a Writers Guild of America uh, award for The Outstanding Script and this is one of four awards that he won nobody else has won four awards from the writers guild of america the demon with a glass hand was one of the stories and i think another one was soldier that he successfully sued in the 80s james cameron um for the terminator series and actually if you read um, the
1: whole story he ended up getting the name on on the credits of the film now it says in acknowledgement of the works
2: of harlan Ellison.
1: ellison So they stole his works. And it was just what's what's good as well is you can tell, like, this man, Ellison, this demon with a glass hand, obviously he recognised it was his own show and he just did not let up and eventually he got it where he got the money and he got his name on the credits. You just actually, pure and simple, you don't mess with Harlan Ellison. He will he will win in the end. Like you say, he'll not give up. And there's a story going around which is actually fascinating and... If you just listen to it or, or, or read read the the words, you just realise what a character it was. Throughout his life, he says he doesn't want any ads in his books, especially, or he doesn't want ads which hit on cigarettes and alcohol. And apparently, New American Library c- signet books fine with that, and all of a sudden they ran this advert that had cigarette adverts in it. So Ellison phoned up um, American New English Library and said. Pull the book, simple as that. Pull the book. Get your and director. Take all the books home and rip out the pages, or if not, just take the book off the shelves. So he said he wrote them a nice letter saying, "Take you know, take it out." And he got no reply. This is when he kind of, this is Ellison, couldn't beat them the proper way, so he decided to go his way. He sent them a stone. He posted the managing director a stone, and <laughs> he says he wrapped it up in brown paper bag and all like that. Send it off. And then for the next 230 days, send another stone to the guy's house. And he says, he's still got no reply. So he says, I'll wait a little bit longer. Then he says he had a friend who's was, a, a, I think it was a Polish hitman or a, a, like a Polish gangster. He says, can you give the actual managing director, let's see, a little fright? And apparently this guy was walking walking through the streets of New York or somewhere. All of a sudden, this hitman says... If you come home one day and you find your children's forehead stapled to the door, you should have realized you should have took that advert out of Harlan Ellison's book. And then in the end there's still no reply from this this guy, he just refused to take out the advert. So in the end, Harlan Ellison shot a gopher and posted it to the, the the managing director, but he says he posted it he posted this um, this dead gopher in a box, but he posted it the slowest post he could get and then <laughs> he took it off. Months to get there. Shot it in the head. And by the time this guy got this dead gopher, it was rotten and stinging Eventually Hall Nelson won his case and the
2: advert was removed. Not before this managing director had a hard triple heart bypass. Oh, there's another really good one. This is from his Los Angeles particular time. I I don't know how it actually happened, but he was living in a treehouse. Some guy in Los Angeles uh, in the Hollywood Hills had built himself a treehouse, and to get to this particular treehouse that Harlan Ellison was living in, he had to go up a kind of dirt road. Anyway, Harlan's met some uh, beautiful but dim woman, um, and she shacked up with him, and he says, you know, we connected, but it was nothing really, really great. Anyway... Uh, up up the dirt path leading to the treehouse Where Harlan and his woman are, uh, are ensconced Comes this big, big, big stretch limo And it's a completely ridiculous car to go up a, a dirt track there But they do it, these guys kind of drive all the way up there And this girl says, oh my god, oh my god, it's him Turns out that this girl has just run away From the son of one of Detroit's major, major crime figures and they've come back for this girl. So <laughs> Harlan Ellison goes out into into the into the front of his house, his tree house, wrapped only in a towel, with a hunting pistol, uh, a Remington hunting pistol rifle. I don't know what they a pistol, a Remington pistol rifle. Anyway, this guy comes up and says, "Hi, oh, we want to take the girl back." And uh, that sounded more Australian than Okay. Like <laughs> like I'll not do the voice. I think it's this kind of. This uh, guy sends his two thugs out of the car. They go up there and explain to Holland Ellison that he's going to hand over the girl. And Holland Ellison says, "You know, if you want me to shoot you, yeah, yeah, we we can do that." And these guys they are basically going to advance there. So Holland's going to shoot, and they're going to advance there. And then Holland basically calls out to the main man and says, "Look, this girl, she's a beautiful girl, but she's not so bright. She's she's left, you know, she's left you, and she's been away for two weeks." But I reckon in another week's time or so, she'll want to go back. So why get ourselves into a situation here where I'm going to shoot somebody, somebody's going to die, and it's all over this girl. Well, why doesn't your, your, your son just wait? It'll all work itself out, and all of us can walk away from this particular situation. Anyway, the, 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 the mobster Don says, You know, you're, you're not that, um, that daft a guy for a small fella. And they agree that this is the way they're going to play it. And Harley Allison goes back into the house with his towel on. And uh, the mobsters get back into the limo. And then they reverse down down, down the hill. But unfortunately, it, it was the, entirely the wrong vehicle. And they overshoot. And they go into the dirt bank of the actual road itself there. And they get themselves stuck. So one of the mobsters has to come back up to the house, knock on the door, and ask politely if he can use Harlan Ellison's phone to call a tow truck to actually get the car out. And apparently it took them four hours to tow the stretch limo off, off, the, off the dirt edge of the, the, the dirt bank off the side of the road there before they could get themselves um, back down there. The truth of Harlan Ellison's life there is, is, is sometimes more interesting than the
1: fiction. Well, actually, he puts it down to, we see his... He's a snake on a rock. That's how he kind of describes himself, personality. He's a snake on a rock. And if, uh, if you just leave us alone, he'll not bother you. But he says if you go up and mess with him, he'll for the rest of his life.
2: There seems to be a vast volume of work that Harlan Ellison has written there about the debacles. Things that have gone wrong. The stream of uh, abuse that you'll get from Harlan Ellison if you cross him or you actually annoy him um, has put a lot of people off from, from working with him. Is his running with Gene Roddenberry which seems to have ran on for decades. And this was 1967 when Harlan Ellison wrote, was commissioned by Gene Roddenberry to write a script for which became the episode Star Trek Ever, The City on the Edge of Forever.
1: And actually what Kieran mentioned about this, like this like little riff that uh, Harlan Ellison had and Gene Roddenberry, it's like there's a 10,000 word essay on the thing. So... Anybody wants to go and have a look for that? That's you know, obviously, this little rift went on, Kieran was actually seen for years. <laughs>
2: Well, 1967. What was actually happening in 1967? Just to set the
1: scene there for 1967, we have Charlie Chaplin who opens his last film, Countess from Hong Kong*. That was in January. In the 12th of January, we have James Bedford, Doctor James Bedford, becomes the first person to be cryonically preserved, intent for future resurrection. Well done. <laughs> joins the ranks of Walt Disney. I believe Walt Disney's head. Head. Uh, these corpsicles. Another little story about Hall Nelson. He was actually hired by Disney um, in, um, to, do, to do some work as a writer for Disney Studios. And he was actually fired on his first day there because he, he suggested that
2: during uh, that... went for lunch. He went off for lunch with a whole load of writers. Sits down at the table and starts graphically describing how <laughs> he could do a, a Disney porn flick. <laughs> Getting Mickey Mouse to do all these... R- so he goes through it all, <laughs> with all the voices for all the various characters there. And uh, obviously has everyone in, 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 uh, with, with their side splitting there. Unfortunately, on the other table there is... Mr. Disney. Yes, uh, Roy O. Disney and uh, a few other studio executives are all sitting around there. So Holland goes back to his desk, finds his pink slip, um, also goes out there finds his parking space. has had his name whitened off and he's away. <laughs> Literally one day there with Disney and he's done. But you can just see that one there. It'll Dizzy's too big uh, not to be toppled for as far as Harlan goes there, because he's a giant killer.
1: We also have Lewis Leakey announces first pre-human fossil in Kenya. I'm not actually named that because it's a big, long name there, and I don't know what that means. We have, on January the 27th, Apollo 1, US astronauts Gus Grissom, Edward White and Roger Caffey are killed in the fire-ups in the Apollo spacecraft. The USA-Soviet Union-UK signed the Outer Space Treaty. We also have like serious bushfires in southern Tasmania, claim 62 lives in this year. Jimmy Hoffa begins his eight-year sentence for attempted bribery of a jury. And Joseph Stalin's daughter, Big Joe's daughter, she defects to the USA via a U.S. embassy in New Delhi. 13-day TV strike begins in in the U.S. Oh, that must have been heavy for you people out there in the U.S. First French nuclear submarine is launched. We have Martin Luther King denounces Vietnam War during a religious service in New York City. And you have 10,000's march against the Vietnam War in San Francisco. That's in April that year. And Elvis Presley and Priscilla are married in Las Vegas. And Yuri Andropov becomes head of the KGB. And Kieran go. folk rock band, Fairport Convention play their first gig in that year, 67. Sandy Denny.
2: City on the edge of forever. Roddenberry hires Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison writes a script. Uh, Gene Roddenberry doesn't like his script. Harlan Ellison and Gene Roddenberry fight it out, and we end up with, effectively, Harlan Ellison wants to have Cordwainer Bird slapped onto the, um, the credits instead of his own particular name there. Cordwainer Bird is a pseudonym that he started using in 57. It's a bit of a major piece because he won a Hugo for the actual, for best dramatic presentation and the Writers Guild of America Award for the most dramatic episode. So He won two major awards for this. And the effective storyline is this, the one that actually became the Star Trek episode. Kirk uh, falls in love with this uh, uh, peace activist, ...played by Joan Collins... Um, ...she... uh, ...if she... ...basically by Spock finds that by checking out the timeline... ...that what what had actually gone wrong was that she was saved from death... ...but she must die, if she doesn't die... ...then America will not go into the war in a timely fashion... ...and the Nazis will win. Roddenberry claims that Ellison wanted to make Scotty sell drugs on the Enterprise... Well, actually, in the in the in both the original treatment and the later treatment, there's very little to do with Scotty in the actual episode. Gene Roddenberry went to many, many, many science uh, Star Trek conventions, saying that Hal Nelson wanted to turn his uh, his Scotty into a drug, a drug dealer. And Harlan Ellison pulled him so many times about this and got so many apologies from Gene Roddenberry. And Gene Roddenberry would go back to the convention and start wittering about this. Gene Roddenberry said that Harlan Ellison put the entire episode um, $100,000 over budget. In actual fact there, it was $66,000 over budget. But Harlan Ellison did some free rewrites.
1: And I mentioned uh, earlier on that Ellison uh, hates the word, like, science fiction. He hates, and he actually, the word sci-fi, he cannot stand it. He says it's actually a hideous sound, and he, he says it's, it sounds like cricket. And Forrest J. Ackerman, who actually coined this term, responded by producing loads of buttons. I'd bear the slogan, I love the sounds of crickets making love. <laughs> He works on the manual Olympia typewriter and still does to this day. And he has a, a kind of distaste for personal computers and most of the internet, actually. He's done like a, a lot of vocal narration for numerous audiobooks, both of his own writing and others. And he's actually stories for Orson Scott Card, Arthur C. Clarke and
2: Terry Pratchett. During this screenwriting period where he took Hollywood by storm is also the period where he wrote his most accomplished short stories. He wrote, to my mind, two of my favourite Harlan Ellison stories. Now, one is uh, obviously going to be no, no surprise to anybody. Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man. Apparently the similarity between Harlan Ellison's name and the main character Harlequin is no accidental similarity. The story is about a future world where being late is in fact considered to be not just rude, but in fact a capital crime. And the TikTok tick Man is the central controller of this particular police state. As I remember it there, the, the rebel, the harlequin, actually becomes the Tick-Tock Man in the end. And my other favourite is Pretty Maggie Money Eyes, about a gambler and his conversation with a female spirit trapped inside a one-armed bandit. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story.
1: Well, I think what's so special about Ellison is he never really wants to kind of do the same thing twice. That's probably why he's not classing himself as a science fiction writer. He always really wants to kind of just keep on trying to better himself all the time and try and stay ahead of actually his game. Despite the fact he doesn't want to do the same story again, it doesn't stop him trying to sell it. Oh, no, and, and it wouldn't stop me trying to sell it as well. Cliff mentioned in last week's email that I read out that he's, you know, he, he, He wasn't very well known over here in in the UK. At this moment, he's actually doing like a renaissance in America. He's quite, you know, you can find him in all bookshelves. And actually, in Russia, he's been on the top of the bestsellers list over there as well. And he says, and this is him kind of coming, he tries to fight the system as well. Apparently in Russia, they just came out with books... That didn't tell his agent about. Harlan Ellison says to his agent, "Well, I tell you, do what you want." And here yeah, they came out with a, a massive volume of works, and that actual volume of works just did, despite these like kind of cowboy editors, went to the bestsellers list and made the, his editor in Russia the top man in in editing terms. And he also goes on to say why why he thinks he's because you look on our British shelves and he's not there at all really Harlan nelson you, you never see him you see the odd Ray Bradbury and that kind of stuff, but there's no Harlan nelson and he he kind of puts it down to when that the his book came out Shatterday. and with each of the short stories that were in there, Harlan nelson wrote this like little introduction, and the edit this british editor edit, said, we need to drop them, they're a bit too personal and they show too much of you as the man Harlan nelson and Ellison replied, and that, that's a bad reason why. The editor turned around and said, because we're British and we, we don't like that kind of sort of stuff. So I think Ellison had said, bollocks, you can, you can keep them in. And from then
2: on, he's kind of, I guess, not really hit off with the British markets. Well, certainly Dangerous Visions, which also came out in 1967 under the banner of The New Wave. And, and Harlan Ellison, obviously, you know, like a lot of writers, didn't want to be typecast into a form of genre. But Dangerous Visions made a massive impact and certainly ran with the spirit of the age as much as anything that Michael Moorcock and the New Worlds crowd were doing there. It was a big, 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 big thing, followed in 1972, Tony, by more Dangerous Visions and then followed not at all yes, in any way, shape, or form 75. <laughs> by, by any Dangerous Visions after he'd sat on everybody's Is this the one work. Where
1: Joe Haldeman's story sitting yeah. on his desk, even probably this day. And now. Joe Haldeman reckons that he would have invented cyberpunk. But apparently, I heard that um, it just it would take an enormous amount for him to put this together, and he just even then, back then, he, he just didn't have the time or the kind of the energy to do it. So, but it's still there and whether it gets released or not is it's up to Ellison, I suppose. Well, I think he's now more known for um, it, it's it's him again, Ellison the man, and like apparently in in the in the early eighties, he assaulted the author Charles Platt and the cricket. And he and this was at the Summer Nebula Awards.
2: The two of them agreed not to discuss it then went
1: an ahead and discussed I just it. Told everybody about how he got on. And also he was interviewed for this uh, Starlog, Starlog magazine, hundredth edition. And they were actually spotlighting the hundred most important people in science fiction. And Ellison went on record actually when he was getting interviewed that I thought the film Back to the Fus- Future was a piece of shit. <laughs> and that's when this magazine had never had so
2: much negative negative fan mail back. Ever. Well, you just run against popular conception there. From about 71 onwards there, Harlan Allison found himself writing comics. He was very much involved in the comic scene. So he was writing episodes for The Avengers and most famously um, writing episodes for Daredevil. And he's pretty much, his Daredevil comics are considered at that particular time to be um, defining works for the actual character himself. In comics it seems that Harlan Ellison has found some lasting and building fame, and he's even been writing bits and bobs. There was uh, I have I have I have no mouth and I therefore can't scream. That was made into a computer game. He provides the voiceover in the computer game of the god. mad god uh-huh. Am.
1: There's definitely two sides to the guy, you know what I mean? There's two incidents where you kind of find out just really what he's like. And he says he's, throughout his life, he's upset people by his standards, he's upset them big. But he says if you ask his friends, they don't actually think that was a big upset. But there's one incident that really sticks in his mind, is when he was asked to um, write a book for an editor friend of his called Pam Pie, and she worked for the Longmeadow Press, and it was actually a publishing arm of uh, Walden Books. And he says she was like a dear friend of his, and it was all just a startup company. But they offered him the money for this book—not
2: a great deal of money—not a great deal
1: of money, but it kind of enough to kind of probably, I guess, keep him happy and go ahead. But he says the next day, didn't he get an even better offer from this other company? And even this Pam says you've got to take that offer. It's going to be, you know, what you need. And he just it tore him up that's even like the, this editor friend said go ahead and take that other offer but it just tore him up all the time but here in the end he took it up and consequently this um long meadow press they went out of business you know so he's got they're the kind of things that hit a true nerve for
2: harlan Nelson and really cause him upset isaac asimov said that you know the guy has a a knack almost a perverse pleasure or takes a perverse pleasure in presenting the most unsympathetic side of his personality to people he doesn't know. But once you get past that particular side of his personality, you realise that he's a warm and loving and caring uh, human being who would do anything for you if he thought it would actually help. And actually, for three years,
1: and this is where you get to find out about Alison's, you know, another side of him, bought to get the E. Van Vogt science fiction writer the, the Grand Master Award. And he says it's been... He'd been passed over for decades and decades on this thing, and... And he went to all the ex-presidents, you know, and he got all their backings, like, right away up, down from, like, Jack Williamson, and
2: he tried always to, like, get this guy, this writer, you know, the Grand Master Award. Well, this is at the stage where A. Van Vock had, had basically got Alzheimer's disease and was fading, fading fast, and this guy hadn't had a, he'd been a real leading light if this guy had not have been around there, the genre would not have been the same.
1: Well, he says like this. Um, this guy was like the biggest of the big in the field, you know, bigger than the, like the the Arthur C. Clarks, Henneland, and Bradbury and all that. And just every time he was passed up and passed up for this um, this award, and again the, the Ellison-esque guy in him. He mentioned it to them. You know, he waited a couple of days, time or you know, a few few months. No reply. Then he said, "If you don't give this guy his award, he's going to go on TV and just blast the hell out of the uh, science fiction writers of America."
2: Well, he had a he had a, he had actually a series on the um, Sci-Fi Channel. This is part of the latter years when he wasn't. He, he certainly f- he found ways and means of getting getting himself a platform. He also had this um, show on the Sci-Fi Channel. And he got up there and he basically said, you know, this is what they need to do. These guys these guys, need to do this. They need to basically give this guy his recognition. And uh, he got up there and he, and he basically, with his soapbox,
1: fought his case. And his, his actual words, he says uh, when he did this, because he said before that, you know, he was being polite to them and everything like that, uh, these science fiction writers were married a lot. He says they just became very arrogant and high-handed and wouldn't do a thing about it. And Kim came and said he finally got on air vented all his feelings and he says they start to squeal like stuck pigs
2: <laughs> it's amazing isn't it
1: and he says um but he says of course he, well, he just,
2: didn't do just one he did four more and after he'd done four more a.e van Vogt got his award yes and he says he,
1: he got his award, and he just had to because he embarrassed them he humiliated them and uh, and he goes on to say that was like a real good thing and it was actually he was on the side
2: of the angels <laughs> That kind of brings you to a later stage there. Harlan Allison has definitely fought against the establishment all the way along the line there. He did actually... He was one of the people who helped set up the Science Fiction Writers of America in the first place. I think that was 65. By the time it gets to the 80s there, um, uh, as he always is, he's fighting against the establishment. But in May 2006, he actually was elected a Grand Master of Science Fiction himself. Himself, yes. And uh, he actually makes a comment there that it felt quite strange after having fought against the establishment for so long to actually get this recognition made him feel a little bit washed up because all of a sudden, you know, he'd always dreamed about getting this award. Maybe he'd go on stage and he'd he'd just humbly accept it with a couple of small words there and shock everybody. Or he'd get up there and, and, and deliver a tirade. Or he'd get up there on the stage, uh, collect his award, and then jump into the audience and punch a few people on the nose. <laughs> well,
1: it's like even to this day now, even now, and you're talking like, say, August the the 26th this year, you know, 2006, uh, during the 64th World Science Fiction <laughs> Convention, he was up on stage, and Elson grabbed Connie Willis's breast
2: when on stage giving up the Hugo awards. Well, that's it. She she said, um, get the "Guys, a hold an of, old man, eh? get a hold of yourself, Harlan," and instead he gets a hold of her. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the guy still now And I mean, you know, bless him, he's getting on He's still at the height of the controversy All the way through this science fiction field I don't think there's
2: been anybody actually like Harlan Ellison I think Harlan Ellison, if he really felt something about something He'd do something about it The man had a great deal of integrity And he says it himself there, you know He's done some bad things and he's done some good things You just need to listen to Cliff's Cliff's review at the start of the show there to see how obviously um, the, the magic that uh, Hal Nelson can put on page, because he is a great writer. He is a very good writer, possibly one of the greatest writers of his generation. He certainly won more awards than any other. Uh, writer of his generation there. Certainly across the board there, Mm -hmm. as a writer, some genre writers have won more in their particular genre, but across the board he's done far, far more. When things go wrong, he's written about those as well. It seems that his career has gone from that vast output of of hack work to then doing those award-winning screenplays to then basically losing his way to a certain degree there and then writing more so uh, than writing fiction work, but actually writing about all the various things that are going wrong. Well, I think he's he's
1: he's actually very very popular on the um, like the talk circuit. Scene got CDs out on you know his actual lectures he's given the talks and everything like that. he had a he had a,
2: he had a, a column in the Los Angeles Times. -hmm. And he won he won an award again. You know he won he won a the Writers Guild of America award for his column. He'd only been doing his column for sixteen weeks, and he blew the New York Times and everybody else's Chicago Tribune. God, I don't know my newspaper. I tell you what's
1: actually really funny, and this is just like an offside note. This uh, David Garrold in nineteen eighty, he wrote a Star Trek novel called The Galactic Whirlpool, and it makes mention of the Ellison Star, a particularly unpredictable and angry white dwarf star.
2: He is a man who will stand there in his soapbox and he will vigorously demand, defend what he believes in. And he won't back down.
1: That's, thats I think that's exactly, he'll just not back down. And if it means sending 230 stones to the, like head of a, of a company or send in a dead gopher, this guy will win in the end, and that's actually a really nice thing to,
2: to talk about. He's been a radio talk um, show host as well. He took over from um, Mike Holden when he died there on the radio show Hour 25.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, we don't get any of that over there, but you just you kind of hear these stories on the web and through through other people, you know what I
2: mean? So Whether or not you like him or not is beside the point there. He has... Uh, been writing for over 50 years now, and he has published 73 books. He's one, uh, apparently, he won the most decorated author ever until J.K. Rowling came along, <laughs> 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 which seems rather sad. Um,
1: He's done an awful lot. Actually, listen to that uh, L. Ron Hubbard show. I said, uh, I think Rowling, J.K. Rowling, last week's. Show. Oh, hey, you're yeah. going to get
2: even better than that there. I, 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 I did some quick math there, and I managed to add up uh, Joe Alderman. if you take, if you take 1943, yes. <laughs> uh, and and you subtract it from 1952. Well, you'll not get
1: twelve. <laughs> <laughs> That's why right, you put. He uh, said he was twelve. Oh, I, was,
2: I, was, I was vigorously stood. Tony said to me as I was doing that quick math, there. Now get it right. Now get it right. Well,
1: actually, I was telling Kieran as well. I um, I edited this show and I you, I listened to it. Don't know how many times and I just never sang it. <laughs> now you got it wrong.
2: <laughs> this is it.
1: going to some emails sir we certainly can do right then well this is from mick and mick i forgot to actually read you last week so my apologies for that it's uh, your email must have just got mixed up there somehow but i was about and mick goes on to say i was about to write to you asking what happened to the l ron hubbard vote well it's it passed and it won there you go i've been catching up with your shows for a while whilst doing diy and i went on the website to vote yes for big ron show we had taken it down, apologies for that, but it was finished. It was distraught. I'd been coloured by Dianetics people down Fawcett Street in Sunderland many years ago, and I was interested in finding out a bit more about their main man's output. Well, actually, like you see if you listen last week's show, me and Kieran were coloured by them, so I guess that's a, a very popular thing, is to be coloured by the Dianetics um, preachers and get it uh, get coloured. Luckily, I have just heard that show number 11 and found out that the show will go on. Yes, well, that was a past one. Anyhow... Any- Anyhow, I love your PK Day shows and just listen to the San Love Lem. I may have to use your link on Amazon to pick it up. Keep up the good work as it's great to hear accents from not America or from London. Having found out about Tony Sunderland roots, my affection for the show has increased. I am a Sunderland fan and my, for my sins... The coverage of non-mainstream science fiction writers is great and there are plenty of podcasts that cover the newest stuff and I have just turned 40, so I feel a bit more on the wavelength. Well, welcome to the 40 Club there, sir. Although I have no idea how old you are. Well, I am Mick, I am 40, sprightly 40, and Kieran is... 36.
2: The babby of the, it's <laughs> the a- interesting to point out there that I actually replied pretty much to all these things there in an email earlier on as well.
1: Yes, well, Kieran, like you say, Kieran mentioned, but I... Make I
2: put your your uh, letter down somewhere and lost it totally we've got one from Mark Malcolm, pretty short one here. You should join Harry Harry Harrison, point number one uh, enough about Ronnie Corbett, point number two, and three keep up the good work. Mark Malcolm, thank you, sir.
1: Well, it's funny I'm just getting a new one from Mark, so I might as well read that out while while I'm here um gentlemen Mark says this his title is not so brief this time. Thanks for your invitation to write three pages on. Hubbard, I think your podcast was enough about the old rascal. He seems to have been quite creepy. Exactly. You must admit, though, he certainly did make his mark. He certainly proves that P.T. Barnum said about a sucker was born every minute. Thanks for the material on Stanislav Lem. I am now reading the Futurological Congress at the moment, and I'm impressed at how something written over 30 years ago he goes on to say about Dick, Thanks for spending the time on this fellow. I believe he was worth it. I do think you might have talked a little bit more about the material which seems so suited to adaptations in the movies. My opinion is that when you take a story by Dick and are forced to strip away material to use in the movie, his work is actually improved. If you look at his later work, you are confronted with page a uh, page of great writing followed by a page of elegant, unintelligible gibberish. Yeah, exactly, sir. There was a made-for-TV movie, I think it was on DVD, called Imposter, starring Madeline Stone and Gary Sinus. I think the message of this particular work might be summarised. You are being lied to, and some of the biggest lies have been, you've been listening to are those you've told yourself. I think this is what people find most appealing in his work, and why it makes such good cinema. Suggestions for future shows. Nominate three. Inventiveness and versatility. Harry Harrison, Harlan Nelson, and Keith Lamour. Thanks again for your efforts. Once again, forget Ronnie Colbert, Mark Malcolm. Mark, thank you very much for that email. That's really appreciated. I'll get one from I've got one from Steve Bickle. Hello Steve, you alright? Cool, a proper UK podcast about sci fi. Keep up the good work. I'm catching up with all the back catalogue. Just found the podcast. You can guess how far I've got from this email. Sci-fi women, top ten. If you're still collecting names, here's some for the pot. Most important sub character mentioned first. Authors and he's got in there Ursula K. Le Guin and Anne McCaffrey. And then he's got for Sci-Fi Babes. Yes, I think this is kind of where our main meat of the matter was. This is where we sunk to anyway. Yes. um, Jenny Agada for Logan's Run. He's got Jane Fonda in for Barbarella. And Jerry Ryan, Seven of Nine. It's worth pointing out that Harlan Ellison...
2: Wrote several episodes of the TV series of Logan's Run.
1: Sexiest um, sci-fi voice, Summer Brooks. This is from the Slice of Sci-Fi podcast. Yes, she has got a very nice uh, voice there. there. And sci-fi characters, maybe Henlon's bloke, but perhaps Friday could be more on the list. Needs more thought, this. Regards, Steve. Well, Steve Kettering from Northampton, thank you very much for your email.
2: We have two emails from Jamie Mellon. Hello, gentlemen. Greetings again from Sydney, Australia. I've been trying to leave a message on the shout box, but after typing my name and message and pressing the send button, nothing happens. Please, sirs, what am I doing wrong? The message was wondering if that one day you could possibly talk about Stephen J. Donaldson of the Thomas Covenants Chronicle fame. I know these books are not strictly sci-fi. He is currently completing the third trilogy of this epic tale and also written some true sci-fi stories. Just for your consideration... Jamie Mellon Now Jamie sent us two emails one with a picture of Robbie the Robot from um, is it not Return to the Forbidden Planet and he's also sent us another one there where he's uh, sent us a picture of the glamorous Doctor Venus of 5 XL -XL XL5 fame there Mm. I had a thing for Gabriella Drake, who was in UFO by Jerry Anderson. So Yes. I know, yes. I followed that. And she looked pretty much like she was made of plastic <laughs> in that.
1: And the final email is from Paul, Paul S. Jenkins. And if anyone knows out there, Paul is the host of Rev Up Review podcast. And I'm going to play a promo from Paul, so please stay around and listen to that. Paul says, so how about more British sci-fi authors you've mentioned? Uh, we mentioned, actually, Ian M. Banks, which obviously there's going to be a possibility in the future. He says that would be interesting popular, but how about the likes of Brian Aldiss, Bob Shaw, and my all-time favourite, Arthur C. Clarke? Kieran, your thoughts on them?
2: I'd like to do a little bit about Arthur C. Clarke, I must admit. I mean, I think uh, there's a guy who uh, had less hair than Isaac Asimov, by Isaac Asimov's uh, own admission there, but uh, had a certain degree of kudos. Certainly, uh, I think that that would be something. But I think next week we are considering doing
1: well we'll just have to wait a little bit later on the show but he, he is a british writer but i'll just finish this email from paul um another suggestion is a swipe from the kick-ass mystic ninjas podcast um you could perhaps announce in advance say a month who you're covering to give us some time to do research ourselves a particular author's work or time to read them for the first time well, actually, Paul, we actually sit down and do this show and then it's just within, like, we, we each look at each other and kind of say, who next? So there's not really much thought. And... Ah, Tony, kids, you're not
2: there. There's an awful lot of thought there. <laughs> but we leave it outside the room before we do the show.
1: Yes. So, Paul, thank you very much. And thank you very much for the reviewing our um, show on your site, it's your podcast. It was fantastic. And you did a first-class job. So please, everybody, listen to Paul's promo and subscribe.
0: Captain Paula Mackey should have known better. The deal had looked dodgy and so it turned out. Now, deprived of her ship, her communication cap and imprisoned on Plitone, the most disreputable dump she had ever known, she must find a way to get back to her ship. But Garda Grunt, Plitone's unscrupulous wheeler-dealer, Has other plans for her. Welcome to The Plitone Revisionist, a podcast novel written and read by Paul S. Jenkins. Subscribe to The Plitone Revisionist at paulsjenkins.net or at podiobooks.com.
1: Right, Kieran, who are we going to do next week? I don't actually remember.
2: <laughs> Remind me, Tony, who are we going to do next week?
1: Well, it is down to our British science fiction comedy writer, Douglas Adams. I don't think there needs anything to be said about Douglas Adams, so please stick around for next week for sure for him. That'll be, it'll be a great one, to be quite honest. It's, he, brings a, he just brings a smile to your face, you know what I mean? So it'll be nice to do Douglas Adams. Right, I'm going to put Kieran on the spot there. Now, Kieran, it's your turn to tell the
2: web address and the email address. Ah, uh, Well, the email address is <laughs> starshipsofer at gmail.com, and the web address there is com. Yes, please. And please, please pass our name on
1: to anybody who knows it. You know, we've got loads of emails saying that you're doing. It's, it really is nice to know that you're helping out and publicising the show, thank you very much for that, if you could keep doing it that would be great and don't forget if, uh, this is a real bonus as well, if you have a blog and you wouldn't mind mentioning us on your blog and put a link onto your blog to us, that would be great, please tell us and we'll do the same to you, we'll, we'll have our a link to your blog on our site as well and that would be just fantastic, it all helps to spread our word around and also if anyone's interested or if you'd be kind enough to do it why don't you go over and Put a little, write a little review on iTunes. That all helps us as well. So where it says on our page in iTunes, write a review, that that just would be excellent. It would help us immensely get our, our
2: name up in the ranks in iTunes. And, of course, you know, the show is for those people who are listening there. So any advice or tips or hints that you may have there any guidance, we're more than happy, or contributions to the show, we're more than happy to take those on board there. Uh, it makes it feel a little bit more of a family affair.
1: Yes, I mean, honestly, if you're just out there and you listen to us on your, on your iPod, or you just listen at work and tell us about yourself, because it's just nice to know where you are, always come from, you know what I mean? But Jamie down there in Australia, have got people from Canada. Anyway, I mean, we've, on the Google Analytics, we you're in Japan, you're in Moscow, you're actually the seven listening in Gosforth, Kieran, which in Gosforth is about five miles away from where we're recording now. So, hello everyone in Gosforth. Uh, hi. So, Douglas happens next week. Hope you'll stick around and listen to that. I think that's round about it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like you just say, it's
2: good night from me. And it's good night from him.
1: <gasps> so long ago. So. <laughs> My youthful glow has slowly ebbed away there. Mm -hmm. Just kids. Kieran used to come over, if anyone's interested, he used to come over. used to finish working in a restaurant in Newcastle. Had to get the last metro over here. I used to pick him up. You know, it must have been about half 11, quarter 12. used to sleep on the settee in the living room or on the sofa. And we'd get up, have breakfast. And the dogs would be kind of all circling round, and we got on with these shows and we did that. And we did that, I think, for about 60 or 70 shows, if, if the truth was known. Then we kind of, actually, that's right, I fell at work. And knocked myself out, and it kind of—I was in hospital for a few, I think, about five days, and then recovering. And it, the shows got a little bit sidetracked. and We never got back together doing them shows, and I picked it up and carried on doing it myself. And then I think I asked Amy. Amy stepped in and did, did a few shows as well. And I like to say, I'd like to say it was—you know what I mean—my kind of idea. You know what I mean? It was my inspiration that kicked off. Should I say. Looking back at genre history 100 episodes later, Ems. But I'm sure it, I'm sure Amy did what You know what I mean Probably show 100 If I'm, you know, somewhere around there So We will dip back That was a big one. We will dip back into These Starship Sofa's Originals Because like I say There's some great, great content in there <laughs> There's some funny old times And there's some great writers You know what I mean Oh, the, mem- the memories are coming there. Anyway, until next week, look after yourselves.
0: Hello
1: and welcome. Welcome to the Oral Delights, show number 100. I am... 200. Crime City Central Featuring Tales to
0: Terror 400
1: Protecting Project Home And the all
0: new Fire 500